How to decorate interiors. I feel the same way about interior decorators that I feel about real estate brokers. They are worth every penny. If you know your tastes, hire a professional who can help you fine-tune those tastes and work with you to create the perfect environment for your work or for your home. If you see a space you like, whether it's a living space or a restaurant or an office, ask questions. Who was the architect? Who decorated it? Like hiring a broker or a contractor, hiring the right decorator works by word of mouth and by finding someone with your sensibilities. Make sure the designer has your best interests in mind, not merely their own. It's their job to know your tastes, whether innately or otherwise, and to find the best way to display them. Most people incorrectly think that interior decorators are a wasteful extravagance, but believe me, they will save you time and money. Interior decorating is not as simple as walking into a furniture store and pointing at a couple of pieces. Good interior decorators have a talent for spatial configuration, choosing colors and materials, and most important, negotiating. The best interior decorators have that rare mix of artistic talent and business smarts. Even something as simple as choosing a carpet can require days and days of flipping through sample books. I can't think of anything more boring. Instead, good interior decorators will scour warehouses, antique shops, and furniture showrooms for you and then come to you with a plan including fabric, carpet, and paint samples as well as layouts and themes. With the best interior decorators, you can just sit there and say, Ah, that's perfect. I never would have thought of that. Most decorators work on commission, anywhere from 10 to 15%, and sometimes as high as 20 or 25%. Instead of grumbling about the commission, look on the bright side. Not only do decorators save you time, and in the end money, since you won't make as many mistakes, but dealers and warehouses always extend decorators discounts not available to the average consumer. They can pass those savings on to you. Simple math tells you that it's better to pay a commission on a sofa that's marked down at a professional discount of 50% than on the full price. For instance, if a decorator finds a $2,000 sofa that she can buy at a discount for $1,000 at a commission of 20%, you'll be paying $1,200 for that sofa. Even an idiot can see what's a better deal. And, of course, more expensive tastes result in even bigger savings. Still, negotiate the commission down. When you're working with a decorator, make sure that you ask to see all of the invoices. Decorators are by nature honest people, but you should be double-checking regardless. It's okay to question them on certain expenditures, but don't haggle too much, because high-end materials cost money. High-quality interiors last for years and years, so cutting corners will only lead to disrepair and an unattractive interior that you'll have to live with or change at even more expense. Once I hired a decorator whose portfolio of work had impressed me. I was busy at the time and didn't spend a great deal of time with the designer or watching the progress of his work. I just assumed the work would be on par with the portfolio. The results were a nightmare. I tried to live with the work, but after one month, I couldn't stand it anymore, and everything was taken out. I had to start all over. It cost me a small fortune, but it did teach me a lesson I learned once and have never had to repeat. 
First, find the right person, and second, monitor his or her progress. How to deal with contractors. If you think real estate brokers and interior decorators make you nervous, you should spend a day with me when I'm working with contractors. They are like racehorses. They can be as lazy as all get out, and then they can race to the finish line and surprise you. There's not much in between. They can really be difficult to handle, but if you prepare yourself, you'll have a much better experience working with them. Always remember that they will try to get away with as much as they possibly can. If you call them on it, they'll shape up. They're a strange bunch, and I won't be offending anyone by saying that because they know it as well as I do. Some of them can work wonders and will do so eventually. Some of them won't work wonders ever, which you will also find out eventually. That's why it's good to pick contractors you already know or who have a good record on their past jobs. If you're new to the business of hiring contractors, ask neighbors, friends, and colleagues about contractors they've worked with. Nine out of ten will tell you horror stories. And if they don't, get the contractor's name and put it to use. Always get references from contractors. Ask the contractor to give you ten names of other jobs they have done within the last year. Jobs that they did four or five years ago are not good measures. The jobs need to be recent. And don't ask for just two names. Ask for the full ten. It's easy to make two parties happy, but only a great contractor can make ten parties happy. Once you've hired a contractor and negotiated a budget, my best advice for you is to be tough on them. If you're not, they'll think you're soft and a pushover. You have to make your expectations clear. Be clear and upfront about timing and the inflexibility of your budget. If you need the job finished by a certain time, hold the contractors to that date. If you keep an eye on their work and act as knowledgeable as possible, you increase the chances that the contractor will respect you and get something done. I knew some contractors who took two months to finish renovating a single shower because they had so many emergencies at home that they couldn't seem to get anything done. The poor couple believed every sob story and would even give the contractors homemade cookies, brownies, and lasagna for their unfortunate friends and families. These contractors gained about 10 pounds each and not until the couple figured out what was going on did they manage to finish the shower in less than two days. It's amazing, and sometimes criminal, what goes on in the world of contractors. How to make sure your property appreciates in value. Appreciate your property, and your property will appreciate for you. If I visit one of my buildings and I see something out of place, something that only the most discerning of eyes would be able to spot, I make sure that it's fixed immediately. Chipped paint, an upholstery stain, a missing light bulb. If you do not stay on top of the maintenance, the property will deteriorate quickly. Small problems multiply. You owe it to yourself and to your community to make your property the best that it can be. All that work and devotion are combined into a single manifestation of creativity, energy, economics, and talent. A great building is an emblem of the time and people that produced it. It represents the economics and the spirit of the era in which it was built. 
Buildings can be enormous contributions to society that will remain long after our time here, and if built right, will garner more and more value as time goes by. So not only is it a crucial step to becoming a billionaire, but guaranteeing that your property appreciates in value is also a civic responsibility. I am a committed philanthropist to many charities, but perhaps my greatest gifts have been the buildings and properties that I have bestowed on various communities. Increasing the value of a single property has a ripple effect in the community around it. All of the buildings that bear the Trump name have made their environs more valuable, not just economically, but culturally as well. Beyond the steps you can take to increase the value of your property, landscaping, interior decoration, renovation, you also need to work with your neighbors to make sure that they have the same goals as you. My advice, join or form a neighborhood association. Neighborhood associations help control crime and traffic, maintain parks and other recreation spaces, and monitor the efficiency of services, such as litter pickup and recycling. You're only as good as your surroundings. You can have the best Brioni suit in the entire world, but if it's paired with some crappy shoes and an awful tie, the Brioni suit is pretty much worthless. It's the same with properties. I often see these nice houses alongside another house that's badly maintained. It hasn't been painted, the grass is uncut, a broken down car is rusting in front of it. That's a huge negative for a homeowner. So you have to work with your neighbors to keep up your investment. Also, if you see the value of your property being threatened, write letters to your politicians. Just the other day, I wrote a letter to Mayor Bloomberg about the deplorable conditions on Fifth Avenue in Manhattan. The street vendors are ruining the street's image. They claim to be veterans so they can receive exemptions to peddle trinkets and souvenirs, but only a few of them actually are veterans. Do you see street vendors on the Avenue Motenia in Paris? I don't think so. Part two, money. When you have a lot of money, it can cause misery. But I'd rather have that kind of misery than the misery without it. Money may not grow from trees, but it does grow from talent, hard work, and brains. I have a talent for making money. Some people don't. But part of my talent is my drive and my work ethic. So even if you don't have the genetic makeup to be a billionaire, you can still work hard, and maybe if you're lucky and smart, you can be a millionaire. Maybe you can even be a billionaire. I won't deny that some people are luckier than others. That's a simple fact of life. But you can create luck. I remember one night when I was billions of dollars in debt and the media that had at one point called me brilliant was now making me out to be a total dope. I had to be at a dinner party that I wanted to skip in the worst way. I just didn't feel up to it. But something inside me made me get up and go. At the dinner that night, I ended up sitting next to one of my many bankers. It was one of the luckiest nights of my life. He gave me some great advice and pointed me in a new direction. The rest is history. So when it comes to money, even if you're broke or in debt, your luck can change. You have to work hard to make that luck change. So keep listening to learn how to do just that.
How to be a good investor. Good investing requires financial intelligence. Billionaires are often blessed with a high financial IQ. Most of them could be considered financial geniuses. But your financial IQ is not a fixed number, and you can improve it each and every day. My financial IQ is constantly improving as I watch over my many businesses and my staff. I work hard to make sure that they remain assets, not liabilities, and you should look at your holdings in the same way. Having a degree from Wharton and a lifetime of investing experience, I will explain a few things for those who haven't been blessed with such advantages. Finance and business are a complex mix of components that embrace a large spectrum of enterprises. I think of it the way an artist thinks about technique. You have to have a basic technique before you can apply it to different media, such as drawing or sculpture or painting. As a builder, I use my financial technique as a basic blueprint for increasingly complex transactions. Over the years, those blueprints have become larger and more complicated and also more profitable. Good investors are good students. It's as simple as that. I spend hours of each day reading the financial media, the Wall Street Journal, Forbes, Business Week, Fortune, the New York Times, Financial Times. I also read a lot of books and other magazines. You never know where your next great idea is going to come from. You should be on top of all the news within your industry and beyond that, all local, national, and global news as well. Ignorance in current affairs can go a long way toward destroying your credibility and your bank account. People always ask what I like to watch on television. Typically, I only watch television that I know will improve my financial IQ. My one indulgence when it comes to television is sports. For news and financial advice, of course, I watch The Apprentice but I also watch the CNBC Business Report, Larry King, Bill O'Reilly, The Today Show, and Fox Cable. Whatever you watch or read, study something every day. It's essential that you keep your mind open and alert. And if you're young, don't think you don't have the experience to come up with good investment ideas. I had some of my best ideas when I was 22 years old. When you're that young, you don't censor yourself as much and ideas that you may have will not be clouded by your business experiences. Genius is the ability to assemble in new forms what already exists, and sometimes the youngest people are the greatest geniuses. If you're still in school, pay attention. Education is a money machine. If you're long gone from school, consider enrolling in a financial education class. Some financial courses can be dry, but I always made them more interesting by applying the principles immediately to some project, either imaginary or real, that I could work through in my mind. That way I was already getting real-life experience while I was still in school. How to follow market indicators. A savvy investor is a sponge for information. You have to read the newspapers, watch the news, and listen to the world carefully as it spins around you. You have to follow the market each and every day, and not just your own holdings, but globally. It's a huge task, and it takes years of practice to be able to synthesize information in the way the best investors do. Though recent events in finance have given us business people a bad name, most of us are highly educated and hardworking. 
Most of us are not money grubbers, as the media would have you believe. Good investors use market indicators for two reasons. Number one, to evaluate how they have done in the past, and number two, to make better predictions about how the market will perform in the future. If the Dow Jones or NASDAQ or the S&P always seems to be trouncing your own portfolio, then consider making changes in your investments or turning your money over to a money manager. If, instead, you're always ahead of most market indicators, you can start to watch for trends. If the NASDAQ rallies, how does that affect the bond market? If the housing starts are down one month, what effect does that have on lumber prices or mortgage rates? The market is a crazy, interconnected monster, and you have to know how a change in one part will affect the whole beast. Otherwise, it will clobber you. How to divide up your portfolio. If you are in a position to have a portfolio, even if it's just $10,000, it's a good idea to consult with experts. It's a tricky business, and the experts, though not magicians, can do a much better job than you at managing money. They spend all day tracking the market, so trust them. A lot of idiots went crazy over dot-coms and startups thinking they could make millions, and most of them lost everything. I consider myself to be a savvy investor with billions to prove it, but even I wouldn't dare to strategize about my portfolio by myself. The fees that the experts charge will be zilch compared to the money you can make, especially if you find a trusted investor on your behalf. It's worth it. Your money can work for you if you put it in the right hands. Sometimes the more money you pay a money manager, the more money he or she will make for you on your behalf. Don't be wooed by cheap advice, because your money may not go anywhere. Some advisors charge a fee as a percentage of profits. Others charge by the hour or per meeting. Make sure that whomever you decide to use is honest and upfront about the services that he or she will be providing you. To find a trusted, competent financial advisor, I would consult other people that live and work in the same area, and that may be in the same income bracket. Working with someone whose primary client base is in a vastly different bracket is not the best course to take. The National Association of Personal Financial Advisors is a good source of listings. They can be reached by phone at 800-366-2732 or online at www.napfa.org. If you feel nervous about an advisor, you should check to see whether others have complained or make a complaint yourself with the Certified Financial Planner Board of Standards, CFPBS. You can contact the CFPBS through its website at www.cfp.net or by calling 888-237-6275. If you're stubborn and refuse to hire someone to work with your money, go for it but work to minimize your risk with a bunch of different investments. If you put all your money into one stock or one building or one venture and then it crashes, you're broke, plain and simple. I'm probably guilty of not having a diverse enough portfolio. After all, it's almost all real estate. But I have teams of people working for me, and I know from years of experience how to protect myself when the markets get rough. Determining the right mix of cash, bonds, and stocks for your portfolio does not have to be tricky if you follow the formula that Eric Sacher, 
a financial guru within my organization recommends. Start with 100% of your assets. Most likely, you will be devoting this pot to a mixture of cash, bonds, and stocks. Take the 100% as the number 100, and then subtract your age. Eric recommends that you devote your age as a percentage to cash and bonds, and the remaining amount to stocks. That way, as you age, you minimize your exposure to stocks, which can be a lot riskier and a lot more volatile than bonds. For example, let's say you're 30 years old and you have $100,000 to invest. By Eric's formula, you should subtract 30 from 100 to arrive at the following allocation. $70,000, or 70% to stocks, and $30,000, or 30% to bonds and cash. Each year, as you grow older, make changes to minimize your vulnerability to stocks by moving money into cash and bonds. Obviously, you will need to consider other factors as well, such as market conditions and interest rates. In a hot stock market, you can consider elevating your stock allocation, and in a high-interest environment, I would recommend raising your bond and cash allocation. With this basic guideline to follow, an individual looking to invest some cash should be able to do so in a reasonable and hopefully lucrative manner. You also have to invest with your own personal financial needs in mind. If you'll need your savings for a down payment or to pay for college in the short term, do not pay a lot of broker fees to lock away your money. Instead, buy certificates of deposits, CDs, or another investment vehicle that will keep your money liquid and safe. The worst thing you can do is be timid and let your money just sit in your savings account. It's pure waste. Your money should be at work at all times. You should think of your money as your staff. You wouldn't let your staff sit around, so don't let your money sit around either. Even in the worst economy, there is no excuse for putting money under the bed. How to buy stocks and bonds. I'm a firm believer that unless you have the inside scoop or have a great investment advisor, the average investor is usually at a disadvantage. Therefore, three points of advice. Number one, do your homework before you invest. A dumb investor is a dead investor. Number two, hire an advisor if you can afford one and always research what you are buying. Don't go for the hot tip or quick hit. Those types of investments usually end up in the trash can. Number three, only buy companies when you understand what they do. It is always easy to go with the herd and buy what everyone else is buying. But remember what happened to most of the dot-coms you bought. Stick to what you know. Stocks and bonds are a dangerous game. So if you're in the market for them, my advice would be to be judicious. They are the gambler's gamble. You'll win sometimes, and you'll lose sometimes. Remember that the house has the advantage, and I would be more comfortable gambling in one of my casinos than I would on Wall Street. After all, if a company falls apart, the stockholders and the bondholders are typically last in line at the junkyard. In my casinos, you'll be a lot more comfortable, and you'll probably win a bit more as well. If stocks are irresistible to you, then always invest in ones that you understand. I understand real estate, the nitty-gritty terms of the deals, 
but also the nearly indescribable forces that make the real estate market tick. I don't understand biotechnology or computers or lumber, so I'm not going to throw my money at those industries. If you're already gambling, why play a game where you don't even understand the rules? If, on the other hand, there are companies and industries you know, take your role and go. When picking stocks and bonds, the bottom line should be the people involved. There are some great companies with some great products, but if a klutz comes on to run the show, the company is doomed. If a pharmaceutical company develops a pill that extends life by 100 years and everyone goes nuts, the company will still fail if a loser is in charge. So pick your stocks like you would pick your surgeon. You're not going to have an incompetent operating on you, so don't have an incompetent tending to your money. And then look closely at the numbers. The company should be growing by leaps and bounds each year. If a company's profits have been growing by only a small amount per year or even losing money, ditch the stock or bond and invest in something else. Since the risks of the stock and bond markets are so enormous, you should be playing only if the rewards outweigh the risk. And always remember that the proof is in the pudding. CEOs will make promise after promise about future performance, but if the results haven't been delivered before, don't expect them to be delivered next time. Sell the stock or bond and move on. How to spot a fraud. There's a simple rule here. If it seems too good to be true, it is. That rule should weed out a lot of opportunities immediately. The world is filled with scoundrels looking to make a dishonest buck, and when it comes to your money, you have to protect it from them. When making investments, particularly with unknown parties or in untested industries, make sure you do your homework. If you're prudent and cautious, you won't be swindled. Often charlatans will try to rip investors off by advertising a new venture that's dressed up in smart-sounding rhetoric and promises that are too good to be true. Just because you don't understand something doesn't make it a good investment. Some people come up with the craziest investment opportunities. The other day, I heard a rumor that pharmaceutical companies may try to develop a pill that would make cheating men and women monogamous, sort of the opposite of Viagra. Some scientists study voles, and they would give promiscuous male voles a special hormone shot that stopped them from straying. If humans took this kind of hormone, a cheating spouse could say to his or her spouse, Oops, I forgot to take my medicine today. But all joking aside, don't trust anyone who needs your money for a new venture. The words new venture sound to me like a loan that will never get paid back. That's my advice. Even if the new venture is for a monogamy pill, they want your money pure and simple, so they'll have a chance to make money. If you aren't entrepreneurial enough to create the venture, I'd recommend finding a safer way to invest. How to Pinch Pennies When Spy Magazine started years ago, they decided to do a Who is the Cheapest Millionaire test. They sent checks in amounts from 50 cents to $5 to a list of millionaires throughout the country. I received a check for 50 cents, 
and we at the Trump Organization deposited it. They may call that cheap. I call it watching the bottom line. The higher you climb on the list of billionaires, the cheaper people become. Every dollar counts in business, and for that matter, every dime. Penny-pinching? You bet. I'm all for it. Penny-pinching is the opposite of being wasteful. I have never liked waste, whether it's time, effort, or money. I think I inherited this attitude from my parents, who were careful people with everything, particularly money. I still don't like to overspend for anything, and I will always take the time to compare prices, whether I'm buying a car or toothpaste. As I said before, I always sign my checks so I know where my money's going. In the same spirit, I also always try to read my bills to make sure I'm not being overcharged. There is human and now computer error everywhere, at restaurants, at the phone company, at the grocery store, at hotels, and you'd be surprised at how much this human error can cost you. Don't be obsessive about it, but check through your bills from time to time. You should also always feel comfortable bargaining for goods and services. I do it all the time, and I'm one of the richest men on earth. Even in high-end shops, I bargain. After all, the more you're paying for something, the more the seller should be able to shave off the price. I hate paying retail, and it makes me cringe when I see other people doing it. I've walked into stores and offered $2,000 for a $10,000 item. It can be embarrassing for me, especially since everyone knows that I'm Trump and that I'm wealthy, but you'd be amazed at the discounts you can get if you simply ask. You do have to be willing to walk away. But after you've walked away a few times, the price will come down. It's moronic to be too proud to save money. Another way to pinch pennies is to avoid the brand names when it's necessary. I obviously buy brand names when the brand is tied to a product's quality. Golf equipment, jewelry, and clothing are good examples of brand as a signifier of quality. But aspirin is aspirin, shampoo is shampoo, and cereal is cereal. So don't throw your money away on packaging and advertising. I understand that penny-pinching can have a negative connotation, as in miserly. But when you calculate how much 10 cents on a price can matter if you multiply it by 100,000 or a million, the value of 10 cents becomes clear. For instance, let's say I have to buy 100,000 light bulbs for all the buildings that I own and maintain each year. If I manage to save 10 cents on each light bulb, that's a savings of $10,000 per year. That's $10,000 I can put toward another building or another investment or donate to a cause that needs the money more than I do. Pay attention to the small numbers in your finances, such as percentages and cents. Numbers that seem trivial add up and have enormous implications. My parents hammered frugality into me at an early age, and it's the most important money management skill a person can use. Call it penny-pinching if you want to. I call it financial smarts. How to decide how much risk to assume when investing. It all comes down to one simple question. How much money can you stand to lose? That's how much risk you should assume. If you can't afford to lose it, play it safe. It's common sense, and it doesn't require a degree in finance to figure out. 
you should never fall in love with your investments. If you do, you're in big trouble. Even if I think one of my buildings or resorts is absolutely the most spectacular place in the world, and most of the time they are, I still know when it's smart for me to move on to something else or keep it within my portfolio. It all comes down to your guts and your brains. You need to watch the bottom line. Alan Weisselberg, my chief financial officer, has got to be one of the toughest people in business when it comes to money. When I was having some financial problems in the early 1990s, I called Alan into my office and told him there would be tough times ahead. The banks were about to cut off our funding. Alan said, no problem, and went back to his office, where he proceeded to renegotiate almost every payment from that point going forward. He did whatever was necessary to protect the bottom line and refused to succumb to the pressures of risk. Now he's negotiating with bankers on deals worth hundreds of millions of dollars, and he's so tough that most banks would rather I negotiate the deal than him. He's a loyal employee, and he's the ultimate master at playing the cards of business. To be a visionary and to be a billionaire, you have to chase impossibilities. Few ever get rich easily. So if you find yourself in a situation that you think is nearly impossible, ask yourself once more whether bailing is really the right decision. You never want to walk away and then see someone else less deserving walk off with the pot. For instance, I recently announced that my building at 40 Wall Street is up for sale for $400 million. That's an enormous price, and it's been a brilliant deal. I bought it in 1995 for only $1 million. It's a 72-story 1929 landmark building, and now, sadly, the tallest building in the financial district. When I bought the building, it was completely empty, and I took on some enormous risk. People had given up on the financial district, and many said that my investment would be a failure. I stood by it. Today, it's completely full, and I'll be selling it for at least 400 times what I paid for it. Deal-making doesn't get any better than that. How to stay on top of your finances. Periodically, I ask my financial department for what I call my financial small shot. This report reflects, among other financial data, my cash balances, investments, sales of condominium units, and so forth. If I didn't check up on it regularly, I would be in big financial trouble, and I would have no one to blame but myself. You should pull yours together once in a while, too. Keep track of your various positions, and when you see a trend you don't like, change it. Don't assume that your stocks are performing well, or that your house is appreciating in value, or that your business is growing just because someone tells you it is. Always look at the numbers yourself. If things turn grim, you're the one left holding the checkbook. One day back in the late 1980s, Jeff McConney, my controller, prepared my small shot and brought it to me. I looked down at it and immediately told Jeff, you're fired. I told him I didn't want excuses and I thought he was doing a lousy job managing my cash. Although I am a multi-billionaire and I had a multi-billion dollar organization, every dollar spent by this company comes out of my pocket. The point I was making to Jeff was that even though various payments always need to be made, always question invoices and never accept a contractor's first bid. Negotiate. Negotiate or get out.
Jeff got the message and has been with me for 17 years and is doing a terrific job. He looks out for my bottom line as if the money were his own. Whether you have someone managing your bottom line or you're doing it yourself, money, like anything, takes maintenance and planning to grow. Don't ignore it, because if you do, you're going to lose it. How to motivate yourself financially. I've met some brilliant business people in my time, but some of them will never be billionaires because they never act on those brilliant ideas. 20% of your priorities will give you 80% of your productivity. You should always focus your time, energy, and efforts on the top 20% of your priorities. That's a four to one return on your investment. So if you have a great idea, no matter how much work you know it will require, get going. Don't just sit there. There's nothing more criminal and self-destructive than having a great idea and then putting it off. As the saying goes, a slow starter is always the fastest finisher. I once knew a guy who had terrific ideas, could talk them up at hurricane force and go off and putter away at something else. He would lose his momentum before he even got going. What's the point? He was a personification of the term windbag, and I see and hear a lot of them every day. Maybe they're just entertaining themselves, and in that case, they should be charging admission because it's the only way they'll ever make a cent. Get a move on. Being rich isn't a passive state. Ultimately, time is more valuable than money, because if you run out of money, you can start over again. But when you've run out of time, there's no starting over. How to manage debt. Debt needs to be managed, and the only person who can manage your debt is you. I always tell myself that I can put the leverage on and I can take the leverage off. I'm entitled to do either. Don't let your debt scare you into not doing anything. It should only invigorate you to work harder. When I went through some tough times financially years ago, I used debt as leverage. I loved leverage, and leverage makes a lot of businesses both profitable and possible. But love of leverage when the market crashes is what ultimately eats you alive. I know the perils of too much debt better than anyone else, so believe me when I tell you that excessive debt is best avoided. I'm a much more conservative person now in terms of debt, and I would advise you to be conservative as well. Debt can be managed if you thoroughly plan for contingencies and mishaps. Know the terms, the penalties, and the defaults associated with your debt. And if you do have debt, make sure you're using it proactively. Don't take on debt for regular expenses. Debt should be used only to finance ventures and projects that will have a return to you. People with excessive credit card debt, for which the terms may be ridiculously inflated, are committing financial suicide. If you do find yourself in debt, assess the full extent of the situation. How much debt are you in? How much are you paying each month to maintain the debt? What steps are you going to take to rid yourself of that debt? Cut your expenses, shop for a refinancing tool that will allow you to maintain your debt at a lower interest rate and make your minimum payments to avoid bad credit. If those steps don't work, then consult an expert in debt reduction. There may be alternatives that are not obvious to you.
How to save and pay for college. The best time to start saving for your children's education is the day they are born, if not before. Good education isn't cheap, and it's crucial to guarantee that your children will have a fair shot in the world. Start a college savings account immediately. If you're paying for your own education, look into grants and scholarships. There are a lot of them, and as a result of the high cost of education today, you may still be required to be creative in finding a way to make money while going to school. Don't gripe about having to work during school. It will be better for you in the long run, not only for your finances, but for your character. You will graduate with a top-drawer education and work experience to boot. It's also wise to consider from an early age what professions pay well and plan accordingly. Physical professions, sports, and so forth are always risky and usually short-term in comparison to the length of a doctor's career or a lawyer's. You should also encourage your children or yourself to be honest about what makes them or you tick. People often ignore their talents and opt for careers that don't suit them. That way only leads to failure. People should always be encouraged to follow their dreams. My children have. But realize that a lot of time and money can be wasted chasing dreams that just weren't meant to come true. How to plan for retirement. Aging is the absolute pits. I hate it. There's nothing good about it. But there's nothing any of us can do. We have a credit card that's been given to us by God, but that credit card has an expiration date that's fixed and firm. If we don't use that credit card properly, we have no one to blame but ourselves. Part of aging, unfortunately, is planning for retirement. Social Security is in big trouble, and anyone who's relying on Social Security to get them through retirement is in bigger trouble than Social Security itself. You need to plan ahead, otherwise getting older will be all the more miserable. There are so many smart, inexpensive ways to save for retirement. As your retirement draws closer, put together an annual budget and try to determine if there are any areas in your spending where you could trim the fat. Directing more and more of your discretionary income into savings is the first step. If you're still working, make sure to take advantage of your employer's retirement planning options. Every worker should have a 401k plan, and if your company does not provide one, demand it. The 401k allows you to take a portion of your pre-tax income, up to $13,000 in deferrals per year for most employees, and set it aside in a retirement account. It's beautiful. You lower your taxable income and possibly your tax rate, and the government is essentially giving you money to save. There are no excuses for not participating in a 401k. The earlier, the better. You should also make yearly contributions to a Roth IRA, an account funded by post-tax income but sheltered from capital gains taxes later down the road. Also, study all of your existing assets to make sure that the current mix meets your near and longer term goals. For example, do you have too much money in stocks or do you own multiple homes? If so, move money away from stocks and convert more and more of your holdings to safer, more liquid assets. 
Once you've streamlined your investments and carefully evaluated your current budget, set up an investment and expenditure strategy to cover your remaining life. You can allocate your portfolio according to both the time frame and the amount of risk you are willing to shoulder. Bonds, CDs, and treasury bills become the most appropriate investment vehicles for retirees are those facing retirement. If you plan carefully, and from as young an age as possible, your retirement should be everything it's meant to be. But while you may have pulled away from work, one area you can never stop working on in life is your money. In fact, retirees need to work extra hard to guarantee that they will be solvent and financially secure until death comes a-knocking. How to plan your estate. We're all going to die. Money can't stop it. In fact, money can't do anything about it. One thing you'll need to do is plan how your money will live on after you're long gone. People often criticize me, saying that my success is due to the financial gifts my father passed down to me. That's absolutely untrue. It's true that I owe everything to my father, but not because of the money he gave me. It's because of the education and the practical skills he imparted to me. I plan to do the same for my children, but I absolutely refuse to allow them to live solely off inheritance. They each have to make their own way in the world, and they're well aware of that. Few activities in life match the thrill of creating wealth from one's own labors and then putting that wealth to work to seek out new challenges. Conversely, there is little in life more unrewarding than wealth that consumes its owner or sits idle and unproductive. It's my feeling that dumping huge amounts of money on your children without properly educating them about how to put that money to work or how to make money on their own is the worst thing a parent can do. It's negligent. I have many friends who, through brilliance, accident of birth, or just dumb luck, have achieved great wealth. But in my dealings with them, I often come away with the distinct feeling that their wealth is more of a yoke around their necks than a benefit. They often seem to lack the courage, determination, and perhaps a talent too, on the one hand, put their wealth to work for them, and, on the other hand, use the money they have actively and responsibly. For me, wealth should not be treated as a precious work of art to be hung on a wall and admired from time to time or locked away in a vault. Rather, for me, wealth is a vehicle with which to achieve clearly defined goals. My wealth is in a perpetual kinetic state. I use it as a tool to fix what in my many business ventures may need fixing and to create new opportunities, new challenges. And when I do it right, which I am delighted to say seems to be most of the time, additional wealth. But as much as I enjoy making money, wealth carries significant social responsibility. Although my businesses and properties employ thousands of people and therefore inherently benefit society through the incomes my employees earn, I believe that some portion of personal wealth must also be used to help those who are in need, to reward good work, and to encourage better work and higher productivity in the greater community. In that way, we all benefit. So when planning your estate, I believe that you have two responsibilities, three if you consider the coffers of Uncle Sam to be your responsibility. Number one, not to burden your children with undeserved wealth that could paralyze them, preventing them from working hard and achieving their own measure of success. Number two, 
to make a legacy for yourself that revolves around charitable giving. You should consult a lawyer who specializes in estate planning. That lawyer will take you through the legalistic and tax concerns that will empower your estate to do the most good. Then, the rest is up to you. Sit down with your spouse, if appropriate, and draw up a list of priorities. How much do your children need or deserve? Are there members of your extended family who could benefit from a gift from you? Should your bequests be tied to certain benchmarks or limited to certain uses? Which charities do you regard as worthy? Your estate should be the last great business deal you make. Think of your estate as an investment in the future, a future that hopefully you'll be watching from up in the clouds. Make sure that whatever choices you make, you'll be seeing the greatest return on your investment. Part of thinking like a billionaire is thinking about those billions when you'll be gone. Part 3. The Business of Life Whether you're a homemaker or a school teacher, a lawyer or a doctor, a news anchor or an aerobics instructor, you are conducting business each and every day. There's no such thing as personal and work business. It's simply your business, 24 hours per day. You are your own storefront, your own manager, and your own brand. So don't screw it up by making bad business decisions in life. Don't ask other people questions you should be asking yourself. Billionaires think for themselves, stopping to review themselves and to check their motivations at each step of the way. We've all seen on The Apprentice that the 16 contestants wanted to learn something. They wanted a mentor. There's nothing wrong with that. But a mentor's job is to teach someone to be independent and to learn to think that way as well. Sometimes getting the boot can be both the lesson and a boost in the right direction. But it will save time if you could go for your own blind spot before someone else gets to it first. If you want the best, you'd better be the best in all aspects of business. How to love your job. Billionaires love their jobs. Not because their jobs make them wealthy, but because they wouldn't have become so wealthy doing something that they hated. You have to love what you're doing because then it won't seem like work to you and you will bring the necessary energy to profit from it. That passion alone will take care of 90% of any problems with any job. Here's another trick. Always pretend that you're working for yourself. You'll do a wonderful job in that case. It's simple, but it works. If you're finding that you don't love your job or that you're not doing a good job, demand a meeting with your boss immediately. If the situation doesn't improve, fire yourself and your boss and go do something else. I never want someone working for me who doesn't want to be there. And in the same way, you shouldn't want to be there either. Life's too short and work's too important to stick around in a situation that isn't working. While you should strive to love your job, you should always expect the shit to hit the fan every day. It will prepare you in the best way to face every business day, and it will also keep you on your game. Once you know you love your job, never stop and never give up. If you have a concrete wall in front of you, 
you must go through it. Life is difficult no matter what, but hard work and perseverance make it a lot easier. How to promote yourself. I'm always amazed when people tell me I'm a master promoter. I've never thought of myself as a good promoter. I think people get confused. They think I'm successful because I'm a great promoter rather than the reverse, which is that I am successful and a certain amount of fame has stemmed from that. I get a lot of promotional credit because my buildings are the best. The buildings make me a good promoter, not the other way around. Promotion comes naturally from doing what you're good at. I'm good at building buildings, and that's how I promote myself, as the best builder of buildings. And everyone agrees. Neil Ostergan, a great guy who used to run the Hospitality Sales and Marketing Association, polled bigwigs in business to see what names came to mind when they thought of real estate. Mine came out on top, easily. So I'm not a fan of promoting yourself but I do think it's important to promote an image of yourself each and every day. It's part of having a sense of self and a sense of purpose. Without a sense of self or a sense of purpose, you can never think like a billionaire. So if you're good at something, and it doesn't matter what that something is, it could be tap dancing or palm reading for all I care, people will recognize you for it. And then people will come to you to promote you, not the other way around. Don't worry about actively promoting yourself. If you deserve to be promoted, you will be. How to behave in a meeting. In meetings, you have to be innovative and break things up. Otherwise, meetings will slowly kill you with time. I can't stand long, pointless meetings. I need people to be concise, because I always have about a thousand better things I could be doing with my time. Nothing stifles creativity more and thus good business more than long agendas and endless rigmarole. Meetings, like all other business matters, require a certain sense of hustle. In the 1990s, I remember a meeting in the big boardroom with bankers, lawyers, and members of my team, and it was late at night. We were trying to work some things out, and things weren't exactly great for me financially at that time. I looked around the room and saw a group of tired guys with their ties loosened and their sleeves rolled up, drinking coffee and trying to keep going. Instead of letting the meeting drag on into the night, I decided to jump ahead a few years. I started talking about the new deals I would soon be involved in. At first, I received bewildered looks from everyone, but then the heaviness dissipated, and we all got a fresh start with the meeting. That's an example of looking at the solution, not the problem, and it works. Whether you're in a meeting, taking notes, or running it, your behavior should be at all times attuned to the matter at hand. Grandstanding or talking just to hear yourself talk are counterproductive and bound to get you fired. You should have an agenda, even if it's just in the back of your own head, and be prepared to gather and spread the necessary information in as short a time as possible. Idle chatter and banter are appropriate during the first few minutes, but after that, you're just wasting everyone's time. When you're at a meeting, monitor your behavior and work at being an observer of yourself and of others. Try not to get angry unless it's absolutely necessary or uncontrollable. Anger often indicates a lack of intelligence.
I can remember when things could get under my skin, and when I look back, it was because I didn't have the intelligence to see them for what they were as quickly as I can now. Pay attention to your anger. Sometimes it's warranted, and sometimes it will only get in the way.